Lord, I pray as we look at your word that we would have ears to hear and eyes to see. We thank you, Father, for the gift of your Son. And we thank you, Lord, for the ministry of the Holy Spirit who works in our lives. And we thank you that we are not left as orphans, but you have brought us in your family by grace through faith and adoption. I pray today that you would be glorified and honored and do a work that I cannot accomplish, Father. I pray that you would do this in a way that brings you glory and honor. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you got your Bible this morning, 2 Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings chapter 6. This morning, as we move into chapter 6, coming out of the story of Naaman and Elisha, we come into this next section, and it's a fascinating one. It's one that is going to cover a lot of different themes, but one that we are going to see some interesting stories. The the title of this message is A Floating Axe, A Frustrated King, and A Feast for Enemies. A Floating Axe, A Frustrated King, and A Feast for Enemies. 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 1 through 23. One thing that I was uh, encouraged by and studying this is that when we look at the name Elisha, you know, so many of these people that God uses in the scripture, their names are evident of how God had called them and how God was going to choose to use them. And the name Elisha, it means my God saves. My God saves. And this morning, what I want to do is I want to look at five characteristics of the God who saves. Five characteristics of the God who saves that we're going to see worked out in these first 23 verses in chapter 6. Everybody still alive? Sometimes that just happens. I'll tell you, it's, uh, it is, uh, it's never a dull moment uh, when you deal with, uh, you know, just technology. You never know what's going to happen. I'll tell you, I, I told you this before, but I when I was a student pastor, I worked with three other guys, and uh, when it was my turn to run the sound booth, I always noticed that people like to turn around and see who's back there, but, it's, but the person in the back's looking at everybody turning around going, don't look at me, I have no idea what just happened. And so I relate to that position. It's a very awkward one, but we got your back, Stan. We got your back. <laughs> The first characteristics of the, of, the, of the God who saves, he rescues. He rescues. We get into uh, verse 1 of chapter 6. Let's read it. Now the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See, the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. It's, it's fascinating because when we were back in 1 Kings and we were around uh, chapter 18 and we saw... Elijah's depression, and remember one of the things that he was tempted to think, and he thought it, basically that he was the only one out there that would follow God, and yet God had his people, and God was doing a work. It's easy to lose sight. It's easy to to just completely get distorted in our perspective, and now uh, little did he know that the one that he would mentor would be in a ministry where 
the place where the sons of the prophets dwelled was too small. I mean, the way we would probably liken this in modern times would be like this little seminary. The sons of the prophets, they need a bigger dormitory. They need a place to dwell. It's growing. It, it, God is working. And, and what is their idea? Let us go to the Jordan and each of us get a, there a log and let us make a place for us to dwell there. And he answered, go. So they're going to build this. Literally, this is going to be a project that the sons of the prophets are going to be a part of. And Elisha's on board. He says, let's go. Verse 3, then one of them said, be pleased to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. We come into verse 4. So he went with them, and when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. I was fascinated as I was reading uh, Dr. Phil Riken, and just as he was going through the miracles that we've seen. Ten miracles already for Elisha. He struck the Jordan River with his mantle back in chapter 2 of 2 Kings and walked over on dry ground. He healed the bitter waters at Jericho with a pinch of salt. He cursed the, the juvenile, uh, just the rebellious men, might, might have been juveniles, might have been older men, and two bears came out of the woods to maul them. He told Jehoshaphat to dig trenches so that he could defeat the Moabites when water filled the land. He told the widow to gather jars for God to fill with oil. He raised the Shunammite's son from the dead. He cured death in the pot. He fed a hundred men with twenty loaves. He healed Naaman of his leprosy. And he transmitted the leprosy to Gehazi. I think it was a good idea they asked him to go with them. God was using this man in, in a way that when we think of the prophets of the Old Testament, and God's spokesperson, and, and literally in his ministry, God was uniquely clarifying to the people that my God saves, that the God of Israel saves. He brought salvation. He was the only one that was powerful, that could work. And they cut down trees at the Jordan. And now in verse 5, but as one was felling a log, his axe head fell into the water, and he cried out, Alas, my master, it was borrowed. Now this is where it's hard to get a cultural connection with something this far back. I mean, we're talking 3,000, about 2,800 years, uh, and we're trying to figure out, okay, what in the world is going on here? Because in our time, this wouldn't have been that big a deal. But the rarity and the expense of the iron made this a huge deal. You've got this uh, struggling financial son of the prophet, and he's borrowed this axe. And now the axe head has come off. And now, I mean, for the amount of money that it would cost for iron that was scarce in that day, he's panicking. It's similar to what we see the same kind of call out to the master in verse 5 and in verse 15 of chapter 6. But I heard one man liken it to this. I think it's a good analogy. Imagine an um, unreached uh, people group. I'll tell you what's, what's really fascinating is that when we were in Myanmar and we were going into villages where there were nothing but huts, it was fascinating to see kids walk out of the hut with an iPhone. That was just sort of unique. I wasn't expecting that. Uh, people that their phone was literally worth more than anything they owned. 
and, and imagine uh, being in a village where you're a missionary and you were on a boat and your phone that was your way of contacting all your support team and all of the world, you dropped it in the water. Some of y'all have done that. I don't think I've done that one yet, but it'll probably be in my future. But, but immediately, it would be hard to put into words the expense and the, the necessity of that. I mean, it, it would panic anybody. And, and so here, you know, he loses this axe head, and he's very, very concerned. So now, verse 6, Then the man of God said, Where did it fall? When he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. Unbelievable. Verse 7, and he said, take it up. So he reached out his hand and took it. What do do we learn here? One of the things that I pray is is, is hitting our hearts when we go through the stories of 1 and 2 Kings is the nameless yet significant people in the eyes of our Lord. And, and we see a God who is aware. We see a God who sees. We see a God who rescues. We see a God who meets the needs of people in real time. And, and just in the last chapter, moving into chapter 6, we see the story of the little girl. We see this little girl, how God uses, who had been taken in a raid across the border, brought into Syria, and now lives in the house of the commander of the Syrian army, and yet God is watching out for her and using her. And we see not only that, but we see the commander of the Syrian army, a Gentile, yet we see that faint uh, promises of, of, and fulfillments of this covenant that God made Abraham in Genesis 12, that through the seed of Messiah, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And we see that God had a heart and a plan for all the world. And we see that even Assyrian, God was concerned for and brought cleansing in his life. And now you see this son of the prophet that's not mentioned like Elisha, yet he's in a really dire situation and he's panicky. And Elisha, as a prophet of the Lord, is demonstrating the power of and the character of God and how he meets this young man's need. I wonder, have you lost sight of how God meets needs? I remember years ago, one of my friends, he made a good point. He said, you know, he said, uh, we don't really have to trust God, we think. And I was like, what do you mean? And he says, I mean, what's your credit limit on your credit card? I mean... We all have credit limits, some, a lot of us. And, and it's one of the ways in which, if we're not careful, we begin to condition our lives with the thought that we are in control. I mean, if you think about it, you hear people talk, hear about them talk about their pension or talk about their retirement plan or their accounts or hear about all the ways in which they have sort of brought risk aversion in a, in a, in a context that they're comfortable with that they care about, we can lose sight of the fact that it's God who sustains our life. It's God who's allowing my heart to beat right now. We're breathing only because of the good hand of our Lord. And yet in this story, we're reminded that God has watchful eyes and that God has a personal concern 
for the need of this man. In our life, the question that hit me here, are we looking to God as the one who meets our needs? Are we conscious of our needs? Can we relate to the son of the prophet in how he recognized his situation and Elisha as a vessel through which God illustrated his provision? Have we lost sight of that? I was on a walk just a couple of days ago and just thinking about situations in my life where I need wisdom with people, just personal concerns going on in my heart. Situations, the older you get, the more you think about your kids and the more you think about all the decisions they're making. And uh, you realize real quick how your parents aged a lot in middle life. All of the things that are happening in your world. And, and one of the things that would be so sad is if we went through a study like First and Second Kings and we just got accustomed to the stories, but we didn't learn from them. And through the instruction of the scripture, we walked in hope because of who God is. I wonder what you're dealing with today. I wonder how you're processing your needs in your life. Is it just another to-do list of things that you've got to navigate in your own wisdom and in your own power? Or is the personal nature of a God who cares for the faceless and the nameless of the world and how he meets their need, does it touch your heart and does it compel you to follow him and to pray to him and to go to him with your personal concerns and to understand that he's a God who cares I love this because uh, for me, I thought of this story in relationship to concerns that could tempt you to worry or be anxious. First Peter says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that at the proper time, he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. What are you overwhelmed with this morning? The beauty of the Christian life is that we don't have to wonder if God loves us. He's demonstrated his love towards us at the cross. The beauty of the, the Christian life is that we have boldness to now come before the throne with confidence because of the blood of our great high priest who allows us now into his presence. And we see how he is the God who rescues. He's the God who rescues. He rescues, he delivers, he provides. There's so many words you could put in there beside rescue. But for me, it was this picture of practical day-to-day -day living. He's the God who rescues in the small and in the large. The second characteristic I think we see here in this story is he's the God who sees. He sees. And we move into verse 8, and, and, and if, you read, if you haven't read this yet, look at it with me. Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the men of God told him. Then he used to warn him, 
so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? I read where you could, there's actually, I guess, and in, in, in really uh, detailed Hebrew studies, it could be that it's, will you not show me who of us is against the king of Israel? Like something's going on here. He knows every move I'm making. He knows exactly what I'm doing before I do it. Verse 12, and one of his servants said, none, my Lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. God is revealing to Elisha the plans of the king. He's the God who sees. He's the God who sees. He sees it all. I was thinking about playing cards with uh, Ben and Will. And uh, a lot of times we'll play Uno. They're not real good at hiding their hands. And, uh, and I don't know how they get, like, Ben's hands normally about, he'll have, like, six cards and, like, five draw fours. I'm like, this is bad. And, uh, but he'll be, but it'll, but it'll be holding them out. And so if you're playing, it's hard not to anticipate what he's going to do and what colors he's going to ask for, right, and the change of colors. And so the king is feeling like, all right, what's going on here? Is somebody looking at my hand? Is somebody looking at my cards? What's going on? Why in the world? And he goes immediately to thinking that he has somebody disloyal amongst his own troops. And yet they tell him, they're like, look, sorry. Now, isn't it fascinating that God just took the commander of the Syrian army? Now, I know we got to be careful because when we look at a narrative like First and Second Kings, it doesn't necessarily have to play a strict chronology because when we see these stories, God is using them in the life of Israel. And so we have to at least consider sometimes it's not strict chronology, but it appears that the the story we just read in chapter five happened before chapter six. And Naaman, who's the commander of the Syrian army, just experienced a drastic cleansing. And now the hard-headed, arrogant king of Syria not compelled by the work of God and the life of his commander, is finding out yet again the God of Israel is powerful. The God of Israel is using his servants to confound the wisdom of his own plans. He's frustrating the plans of the king. In verse 11, and the mind of the king of Syria is greatly troubled. So what does he do? He's basically going to seek to raid Israel. He's going to go after Elisha. And looking at this, again, I want you to hear the words of Romans 15.4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. What do we learn about the character of God here? What do we learn about the power of God? God's plans are not thwarted. God's will will be accomplished. You lose sight of that? I know I do. I need to be reminded of this. I'm preaching to my own heart. And when we look at a story like this, we're reminded God is not mocked by people who reject him. God is not at the mercy of powerful earthly people. 
God can work. God confounds the wisdom of this world. God sees. He sees. He's the powerful God. He's the Lord of hosts. He's capable of taking care of us. He sees it all. I was thinking about a a story of uh, even when Jesus appears to Saul on the road to Damascus. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He calls him out, and what strange words that that might have been to Saul. Like, I'm not persecuting you, I'm persecuting these Christians, yet God was the God who saw all. He saw the plight of his people. He saw all that they were facing. It goes hand in hand with the first one. A God who is capable of meeting our needs has to be capable of seeing all. He has to be capable of handling the needs of his people. In order to do that, he has to be omnipresent. He's omnipotent. He's omniscient. He knows all. He sees all. He he sees all. He's everywhere at once. He's all-powerful. And and he's the God who sees. He's the God who knows. When we think about the world, one of the biggest temptations is to get consumed with news that's negative. Have you ever noticed that depending on what you listen to and depending on what you watch, it can have a temptation to put you in a tailspin? And you go outside and you're just mad at everybody. You kick the dog. You know, you're just mad at everybody. You're just upset, irritated, on edge. And we got to be careful. Uh, We have to understand that, you know, God calls us to be effective light and effective salt. We need wisdom how to speak into the culture. We need wisdom to be effective ambassadors for the Lord Jesus Christ, but we have to be careful that we don't have this doomsday mindset when it comes to the culture wars, when it comes to all that's taking place. If you looked at what was happening uh, on a news report and you understood in these verses that the Syrians were going to literally surround Elisha and the servant of Elisha is overwhelmed, you'd be overwhelmed as well. But yet, what do we learn here? God sees. God is not mocked. God's plans will prevail. God's way is sufficient. When we look at the world, I pray we would learn from these stories, not just take them as stories where we're wild and amazed at all these things that happened almost 3,000 years ago, but that we put them in real time and understand that the God that we serve is a God who sees all. He's not asleep. He's aware of all that is taking place. He'll take care of his world. He will not be mocked. Not only does he rescue, not only does he see, but he humbles. And we see how he humbles a man who's very arrogant. And we're looking here at the Syrian king. I was looking at one resource, and and I thought that this was really helpful to me. Basically, you see how he humbled the king, not only through the frustration of the king's plans, number one. You see how he humbled the king through the protection of Elisha and the humiliation of the Syrians and how he toys with them. But then we're going to see, thirdly, he humiliates the Syrian king by showing mercy to the Syrian army. It's unbelievable. Earlier, 
Mike read in our call to worship in James 4. I want you to think of that this morning. The scripture is warning us that a humble, arrogant disposition towards God has a tragic outcome. It says in James 4, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. What, what is your actions and what is your day-to-day response towards God's word, towards his people, towards the church, whatever? What does your responses reveal about your heart being humble or proud? Proud, arrogant. Can you do it all yourself? Do you have the wisdom you need? It says in James 1, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach. Do you see yourself in need of wisdom? When's the last time you asked God for wisdom? When's the last time you asked God for spiritual sight? When's the last time you recognized your need and called out to the God who rescues? You see how these all work together. And and here, the Syrian king is an example of a man who's proud. He's a man that is frustrated. We see it right off the bat in that first section, in verse 8, going down here. We see that he frustrates his plans. He has all these plans laid out, but... God reveals his plans to Elisha. And and as we keep moving in this storyline, what we find is is that God is going to protect his man. He's going to protect Elisha. If we read here in um, chapter 6, verse 15, when the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, alas, my master, what shall we do? Verse 16, he said, do not be afraid to those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young men and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayers of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, this is not the way And this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. It's unbelievable because now these guys are kept from seeing. They're blinded, and the man they're looking for is now their leader. (laughs) Elisha's taking them to Samaria where they're going to discover that the man they're looking for is right there. And what happens? At the end of verse 19, he leads them to Samaria. And then in verse 20, notice how God is frustrating and humbling the man who is arrogant. Verse 20, as soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? He answered, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? It set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. 
So he prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away and they went to their master. Can you imagine that? They come back and he's like, uh, okay, uh, where is Elisha? Can you prove to me he's dead? And they're like, uh, let's tell you about what happened here. Uh, we actually went into Samaria. We were surrounded. And rather than the king kill us, he gave us a feast. I mean, unbelievable mercy, unbelievable kindness. This is not the way you think war going. He's humbling this man who's arrogant. And yet we'll see sadly from verse 24 on as we move through the narrative, the guy's not humbled. He's what? He's doubling down. He's doubling down in his disposition towards God. The question I've got for you this morning is this. He's the God who humbles. Has God humbled you? Have you been humbled by God? I remember uh, the worst I ever got in trouble was ninth or 10th grade. And I remember I was in a lot of trouble. They had a lot of evidence on me. And um, I I was sitting at the table, and I wasn't really, I was scared. I wasn't really tearful, but all of a sudden, the tears started rolling. And they seemed to be working, so I just kept it going. I kept crying. I cried. I cried. I cried. I cried. I cried. I was not remorseful. I was trying to protect myself. I knew I had to navigate a very dangerous situation, and I needed wisdom. Unfortunately, it wasn't godly wisdom. It was earthly wisdom. How do I get my mom and dad off my back? Because this could be ugly. And I need to get through this awful crisis. You see, there's a sorrow of the world that leads to death. And there's a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. And a true humility is when we come to the end of ourselves, recognizing that God has the ability to take the arrogant and the proud and bring them down, yet I wonder for you, have you been humble before, but did it really lead to humility and repentance? Or was it just a doubling down of arrogance and pride once you rebounded? Jesus says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The passage we just read earlier, God, at the end of that verse, what does it say? God stands in opposition to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. I pray today that as we listen to the story of the king of Syria and we think about Elisha and his servant and all these fascinating changes and transitions, that we would all pray and say, God, would you give me a humble disposition towards you? Would you help me to learn from people who are arrogant and people that are proud and people that would come against you, would you prayerfully, God, would you help me to see I need a humble heart? I need a humble heart. What else does God do here? He not only rescues, he not only sees, he not only humbles, but he opens. He opens the eyes of people that cannot see. And we're going to see within this story, he not only opens the eyes of people who can't see, He closes the eyes of people who could previously see. And there's a spiritual reality of this going on here. Look at, we read it already, but you see how there's three prayers that Elisha prays. 
we can learn a lot about prayer in this section. One of the marks of dependence of the people of God is that they don't simply seek to do something. They seek to pray to the God who has the capacity and the power to work. We can't open people's eyes. And remember the man, the servant of the man of God. We don't think this is Gehazi. We think this is another servant. It appears, we, I have a strong feeling he would have been mentioned by name. But here, this guy's scared. He, he gets up in verse 15, and he looks, and they're surrounded. An army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And, and what's amazing is Elisha had spiritual perception. He's a prophet. He's given a uniquely given ability to be God's spokesman. And, and not only that, but to do miracles to illustrate and to clarify to the people the power of God. But, but we see behind this, there's a sense that Elisha was a man who was in tune with God spiritually. He could see what others couldn't see. And he prays for his servant. He says, God, oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw and behold the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. You get the sense that this man was given the ability to see these, these angels, potentially, that were literally all around. There was a spiritual realm that he wasn't even aware of. All he could see was that which he could touch, you know, taste and feel. But, but God opened his eyes to see that he didn't need to be fearful. There's a passage in Deuteronomy. I want to read it to you. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 3, Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. They didn't need to fear. They didn't need to be scared. And, and, and he prays that the man would have eyes to see. And, and God opened up his eyes. But there's two other instances here. The second instance of the prayer was not that eyes that were blinded would open, but the second one was the eyes that could see would be blinded. Verse 18, and when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And you know the story. When they go blind, they're led by Elisha. Elisha takes them into the middle of Samaria. And then what happens? There's a third prayer. There's a third prayer going on in verse 20. And now he prays what he prayed earlier the first time. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, Oh, Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. In the scripture, often you have the same type of analogy. You've got the, you've got the picture of people that, physically are unable to see. And when Jesus restores their physical sight, it's actually a picture of their need for spiritual perception, spiritual sight. 
Mike thought his uh, ears were stopped up earlier when we couldn't hear him sing. I got a kick out of hearing that. I remember years ago, uh, it's funny what happens. Life goes full circle, like full circle, you know. I, I remember being about 20, and I called my dad one day, and I was like, hey, how's it going? He's like, uh, he's like, oh, I just had the greatest thing happen. I was like, what's going on? He goes, I, I got my ears cleaned out. And I was like, what? You got your ears cleaned out? He goes, Stephen, he goes, I don't think I've heard the engine in my truck for 20 years. <laughs> but he did now because what he couldn't hear now all of a sudden, he heard. I pray that we would see something here. There's a reason why a lot of people act the way they do. It's because they don't have spiritual perception. They can't hear the things of God. They don't see the things of God. Ephesians chapter 1, I love this because there's a true reality of spiritual perception that takes place at the moment of conversion. And I'll give you an example of it. Lydia. Lydia in Acts chapter 16. Notice the story or the explanation as to why she began to care about spiritual things. In Acts 16, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart pay attention to what was said by Paul. I love that. He opened her heart. You mean to tell me it's possible to have closed hearts and there's a reason why I don't have a perception of the things of God? There's a reason why things aren't interesting to me of the things of God? Uh, you remember in Acts 26, 18, in, in that part of this, it says to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Look at 2 Corinthians 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now notice what Paul then says. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Now look at this last verse. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Do you see what he's saying here? The testimony of the individual who's experienced the work of God is that they have experienced light that has shone in their hearts to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Years ago, uh, I had a friend uh, named Matt Lander. And Matt... Um, was an, he, he was one of my real good buddies, and, 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 but I used to get in trouble with Matt, and I'm not happy for it, but I'm just being honest. And, uh, but Matt was facetious, and he would like to do things that he didn't. He didn't do certain things that you might think were, uh, that would get you in trouble. He did other kinds of things. And, and he called me up one night, and he said, Stephen, I got this spotlight. 
And I was like, what do you got a spotlight for? And he goes, I'm going to pick you up. It was about 11 o'clock. He picked me up, and, and my other buddy was in the car with him, and we had this huge spotlight, massive. And we went to a, a couple of friends' houses, and we put that spotlight on their upstairs windows, and it was like aliens were invading. Light just, you could see everything in that house. Light just flooded the house. And one of my buddies was like, man, I didn't know what was going on. He goes, my whole room lit up, everything in it. I want you to think about this. Without the Spirit awakening our hearts, without the Spirit giving light to our eyes, the things of God will be dull to us. But the God who saves is the God who brings light to those in darkness. I tell you, I don't know all that's happening God works in mysterious ways, but I, I tell you, one of the ways we can pray, I'm not there, I'm not witnessing anything, I don't know. One of the ways we can pray about revival, we can learn about revival from people that have gone before us. Spurgeon has some wise words about revival that we could pray. We could pray. We hear about things happening. You know what he said about revival? We desire to see the Spirit of God working more mightily in the church. We long, each one of us, to be more completely subject to his influences and more filled with his power so that we may be full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit poured upon those who have him not, upon the dead in sin that they may be quickened, upon the desponding that they may be consoled, upon the ignorant that they may be illuminated, and upon seekers that they may find him who alone is our peace. That's true revival. When those things take place, that's a work of God. That's how we could pray. When we hear of anything happening that we're not aware of, we don't know what's taking place, we can pray. Because what Spurgeon is speaking about is the same God who had the ability to take a servant who was overwhelmed in fear to give him spiritual perception into the unseen, into the unseen realm and realities. But God's the one who opens up eyes. This morning, would you pray with me that God would open up your heart? You may be like, well, I'm already a Christian. Well, I've got good news for you. It doesn't stop there. Ephesians, Paul's praying to the church. He's praying to believers who have had their heart opened. And you know what he prays? For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And then he says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints. Isn't that a beautiful passage? And our hope is, is that God is the one who illuminates. God is the one who brings light. I was thinking about some of the applications. You can pray for your family that God would open up their spiritual perception. You can pray for your own heart, that you would be aware of all that you have and all that you are in Jesus Christ. 
you realize that this is the best prayer to pray for your enemies? That God would do a work? And just like this, the Syrians, that God had the capacity not only to take their sight and make it blindness, but he had the ability to take their blindness and give them sight. That's the way we ought to pray for the people of this world, the people that we're tempted to hate, the people that drive us crazy, the people that irritate us. What do we do? We say, oh, God, would you open up the eyes of their heart to perceive all that is real spiritually? But he's the one who rescues. He sees. He humbles. He opens. And finally, he feeds. What a beautiful picture here. Verse 18, the Syrians come down. They think they're toast, you know. They think they're done. They're absolutely done. They had no idea that they were going to leave, you know, with bread in their pockets, walking back to Syria. But in verse 18, they're struck with blindness. But then Elijah prays, and God opens their eyes. The king's like, look, let's take them out. Elisha's like, no, we're not going to do that. And what Elisha does next is shocking. In verse 22, you should not strike them down. In verse 22, so he prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away. And they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. Reminds you of Psalm 23. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. That's what happened for the Syrians. Matthew 5 says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Romans 12, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. I love this, though. But you, see, you see a picture here of, of something that we've experienced because of the mercy of God. The Syrians experienced mercy here. Mercy because they deserve to be wiped out. But it's something that we can relate to as Christians. Romans 5, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. You look at this and God spared them from being killed. God fed them. God gave them a feast. What a picture. He, they're enemies that, 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 that have had their eyes opened and now they're being fed. What an amazing reminder and picture and something to have fun to think about that our story is similar to that of the Syrian army. We were once enemies of God, but we had our spiritual perception opened. And now, rather than being an enemy, we are a friend. We're like old Mephibosheth, who was down in the desert of Lodabar. And they find out that there's someone in the house of Jonathan that he can show kindness to, and they go down to Lodabar, and this guy who is literally a crippled man, they go to his door. Here in Lodabar, Mephibosheth gets there, and they're like, hey, you, you have a relative that wants to show kindness to you. You're in a covenant relationship 
with Jonathan because of Jonathan's relationship with David, and now you're being brought to the king's palace, and now this man who's a crippled in Lodabar is sitting at the pal in the palace of the king at the king's table. We relate a lot to the Syrian army. We were enemies. We had no hope but just punishment, yet God has fed us, and God has brought us to his table. When we think, take of the Lord's Supper, it, it is such a mark of the fellowship that we now have with the living God through Jesus Christ. And it reminds us of another meal in the future, the marriage supper of the Lamb that we read about in Revelation 19 that will take place in the future. So this morning, a lot of things about God. He's the God who we can trust. He all of these realities, I pray, would touch our hearts. He rescues us. He sees us. He humbles us. He opens eyes. He feeds us. I want to read you a passage, and then we're done. First Kings chapter 18, it was under the ministry of Elijah. It was at Mount Carmel. You remember what he said on Mount Carmel? As, they, as he confronted the prophet's of Baal there on the mountain. We read of a passage that Elijah says something very simple. But he says, if the Lord, he is God, then follow him. Follow him. And that's the question for us today. God has revealed himself. I pray that we not only would be encouraged by the story of Elisha, but that it would be personal to our life and we would see the kindness of God in his character. And I pray that it would compel us to walk with him, to know him, to follow him, to lay down our life before him. Would you bow your head? Lord, I thank you for the reality that you're a God that saves. I thank you that you give us these, uh, these pictures that we literally can, we can see it in real time happening in the life of Israel, illustrated for us. I pray that this instruction would lead us to faith and hope. And I pray that we would follow you, we'd walk with you, we would understand more of your character, and we'd even see more connections to the wonderful grace you've given to us and our Lord Jesus Christ. I pray today that we'd have humble hearts. I pray that what we observed about your character would hit home in our lives. And I pray that we would see that you are God. And just as Elijah calls the people there in 1 Kings 18 to recognize the two choices, to get off the fence, to stop deciding between two options, but to recognize because you are God, you call us to follow you with our whole heart. 
I pray that would be our response today. We thank you for your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you'd stand with me.